Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to The Critic podcast. I'm Olivia Hartley and I'm joined by Lara Maytham, author of Mudlarking, Lost and Found on the River Thames. The book was published last year, but has continued to be a bestseller. I myself read it at the start of lockdown 1.0, and it was absolutely fascinating and absorbing, and it just transported me to a whole different world. So, Lara, could we start for the uninitiated? What exactly is modern day mudlarking and what does it involve? Well, hello, Olivia, and thank you so much for inviting me along to your your first podcast. (laughs) So, congratulations. Thank you. Um, so uh, mudlarking. Mudlarking is basically going down onto the foreshore, which is the riverbed of the River Thames um, at low tide, because the Thames is tidal. It goes up and down twice a day. And when the tide goes out, you can, you've got access um, to the foreshore. And what mudlarks do is they go down and they look for lost and discarded objects that can date back 2,000 years or more. So it's like a giant sort of history lucky dip. You never know what you're going to find. And it's completely obsessive as well. I got that when reading your book. I love that you go down to the foreshore day after day and continue to draw you back. I thought that was what was so engaging about it. So what's the historical connection with mudlarking specifically and, and the River Thames? How far back does that practice go? Well, I think a long, a long way. I mean, I think as long as there have been people, uh, you know, desperate people and objects to find in the mud, there's probably been river scavengers. But the actual word mudlark was first used at the end of the um, 18th century by a man called Patrick Calhoun. And um, he was a Scottish magistrate and he got together with another man to form the river police, uh, essentially to protect the, all the ships that were lying at anchor um in the pool of london with very very valuable cargoes that were being preyed upon and, and things were being stolen and um at the bottom of all this list of miscreants and and sort of thieves were the mudlarks and they were the people he described as hanging around the ship hulls um scavenging for anything they could find and receiving the stolen goods that were thrown off the uh, off these boats um then when you fast forward to the 19th century uh, social reformers like uh, Henry Mayhew were writing about the mudlarks, and they were lots of people were writing about them, and they really wrote about them very, very beautifully and evocatively. And by the 19th century, the mudlarks had become, if they weren't already, um, old people and children and women, and people who couldn't really earn a living doing anything else. And mudlarking, scavenging around for wood and coal and bone and anything they could sell or use was the only thing that kept them away from the workhouse. So it really was a, a lowly, horrible, lonely, lowly kind of profession. That's so interesting how it's kind of evolved from being something sort of clandestine to today, a hobby that is ever more popular. And I think the thing that may resonate with a lot of people as it resonated with me is that I've studied history academically for years. And I think reading your book what's really exciting is the explorative nature of it and you know the, the going out and the searching and finding things that you don't know where they could be from or what they could be and um it took me back to when I was younger and I would obsessively hunt on Chesil Beach down on the Jurassic Coast for fossils and I would take home you know bags for life full of them and it was obsessive about it so I think reading your book really evoked that vivid memory in me and it made me realize I definitely got my 
picks much more out of the explorative nature of history, which I think you could say is a sort of public history. And I love that. So how, how did you get into mudlarking? And what is it that continues to draw you to the river you know, day after day? Um, I think, I mean, I've always been fascinated by history. I hated history at school. Um, but I've always been fascinated by that, that, that sense that people have been here before and they've left something behind and something tangible, a tangible social history, I suppose. Hmm. Um, I grew up in a very old house. Uh, my mother's obsessed with an- antiques, you know. I also grew up in the countryside and, uh, you know, I'm good with my own company. I love my own company. Um, I really enjoy being alone. And so when I moved to the city, I was looking for somewhere quiet to go. And I tried the parks, all the usual places. And I eventually found myself down on the river, which is an incredibly peaceful place to go. Lots of people, certainly back then, people just didn't go down there. You know, it's a, it's a lovely place to go. You can walk miles along the river paths and not really see anyone. Um, and then one day I found myself at the top of the uh, some River stairs and, and um, decided to go down onto the foreshore and have a poke around. And it's then that I found this sort of this tangible social history um, that I've always been fascinated by. I found a single clay pipe stem and it was like a key to another world, really. It sort of, it made sense to me that there was more here. And, uh, so I went home with that and went back again and found something else. And every time I went back, I seemed to find something different and, uh, it, it did become a real obsession, but it also became my escape from the chaos of the city. Um, probably, you know, probably more importantly or as importantly than the objects I was finding was the the, the mental space that I I got. And, you know, I've been doing it for nearly 20 years now and it's got me through some really tricky times. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great therapist, the Thames. It really is. Yeah. You really get that sense as well when reading Mudlarking is that it's a real sense of meditation for you as well as, you know, kind of the excitement of searching and, and the finds. It is, it is. It's that sort of, it's very meditative because really you're doing something and nothing. You know, you can really let your mind go. So you've spent, you know, however many hours outside in nature, really, because it is a big streak of nature that runs through the city. You see the most incredible things down there. Um, and, and you're just communing with, with, with the environment, with the seasons. You forget about seasons when you live in London, but you get down there and you actually feel the wind and you, you know, you, you can get wet and it, it's, it's, proper being outside and then you get these these sort of exciting moments where you where you you know you find something you can reach back literally through the past and touch history do you ever do you ever get so absorbed when you're searching that you get worried that the tide's going to come in have you ever found yourself in a precarious situation like that um yes it's very easy to get cut off i've waded back through through sort of freezing cold mud several times um, when I've been a little bit too absorbed and lost lost sight of my uh, exit points, it's really important to keep an eye on your exit points and uh, try and avoid the ladders if you can. That's a very good piece of advice. <laughs> so it'd be great to get into the details of some of the many objects that you found. And you really have found some incredible parts of history on the Thames foreshore, you know, just lying there in, in the mud and the silk. So out of all the things that you found over the years, what has had the most personal significance to you and, and why was that? Well, I should say that I don't use a metal detector and I don't dig and I don't scrape. So everything I've found has been lying on the surface, which is what I find incredible. You know, I'm not actively searching for these things. They're just lying there. Um, the most personal object that's really resonated with me are, are the shoes. It has to be the shoes because the Thames mud is anaerobic, which means there's no oxygen in it, which means that um, it doesn't start to break down organic materials. So it can preserve wood and leather and even fabric 
perfectly, you know, almost as perfectly as the day it was dropped entered, entered the mud. So you can pull shoes out that are hundreds of years old and they're, they look as if they've fallen off someone's foot yesterday. So I've got a, a child's shoe. It's, it's Tudor. It's, it's 16th century. And um, when I pulled that out of the mud, that was, I think, probably the most magical moment um, I've ever experienced down on the foreshore because inside I could see just the faint shadow of a heel and the little toes at the end and the, um, and the creases across the top. And, and the fact that, you know, that is a direct link with history. You know, that, that is just amazing. And the fact that I was the first person to touch that since whoever lost it, um, however they lost it, whether it fell off and they were getting into a boat or it, it slipped off and they were running across the mud or, you know, maybe they were being bullied and someone pulled it off and threw it over the, you know, threw it into the river. Who knows? We'll never know. But I was the first person to touch it since it left their foot. And that was incredible. That really was incredible. What an amazing feeling. You can't replicate that moment with history in, in any other way, can you? I mean, that's that's totally unique. You can't, you know, and they're, they're, you know, there are, there are collectors that buy these sort of things, but you, it, it's not the same. You know, I've been offered objects by other mudlarks and it's not the same if you don't find it because you're not, it's just an object then. Mm. You're not getting that, that connection that you get when you pick it up. So how, how did you go about restoring this shoe? When you find objects on the foreshore, you have to report anything of historic significance over 300 years old to the Portable Antiquities Scheme. They are recorded and they're put on the um, on the finds database, which is a really important resource. They they record all the objects that are found in fields and beaches and rivers all over the country, and they've got well over a million now objects because so much is being found. I mean, we live on top of history. We're walking around on top of it all the time, and sometimes it surfaces, and it needs to be recorded for it to be meaningful. Um, so obviously, I reported it to that. Um, I asked the Museum of London if they could help and. Museums just don't have the resources. And in London, they dig up so many shoes. They've got so many of them. They didn't want it for their collection. You know, I was quite happy to hand it over. They didn't want it. They didn't have the money to preserve it. So it took me two years to find somebody who would help me conserve this because I sometimes do my own rather amateur conserving just simply because if I don't, it's going to fall apart and, and, and vanish. I wasn't prepared to do that on this shoe because it's just too perfect and beautiful. And so... I went to the Mary Rose Trust. They were really helpful, but they didn't have enough money either. Uh, but they pointed me towards um, the University of Cardiff where they have a conservation department and it was given to a student and she did a wonderful job. So it, you know, it taught a student a huge amount as well. Um, and it's, it's been conserved for the future. And, you know, it was win, win, win all, all around. It was great. Have you ever come across something on the foreshore which, you know, it could be it could be a brick or it could be a piece of wood, but there was something about it that interested you. And so, I don't know, you, you picked it up and had a look at it and it actually turned out to have great historical significance, something that you were really surprised about when, when you learned more about it. I get all the time. I mean, I'm not a professional. Mm -hmm. I'm not a trained archaeologist or even, a, uh, you know, I didn't study history. I'm just an amateur. I've just been doing it a long time and, and I read lots of books and I'm self-taught. So I'm finding out stuff all the time. 
And I know that I've left things behind that are really important as well. And I look back on that and kick myself. But um, yeah, all the time. I mean, you can turn over a, you can turn over just a, a, a roof tile and file, find a, a set of paw prints running across them. You know, you pick up the oddest things. You don't know what they are. And I now bring everything home until I do know what it is, rather than going, oh, that's nothing and leaving it on the foreshore. So um so yeah, all the time. I mean, I, I took home um, a piece of glass that I thought could be Roman, and it turned out to be um, early medieval uh, Spanish, very rare, which caused a bit of a stir. Yeah. Um, you know, I go, oh, just Roman, but you know, there is quite a lot of Roman stuff down there. It would have been, it is, you know, it would have been amazing if it was Roman, but it's even more amazing that it's early medieval. So you often find out things you think it's something, and it, and it turned out to be something even better. Um, and then, of course, I did rather stupidly take um a live shell home on the train um which was <laughs> a very stupid thing to do um that was when i first started my blasting and i just didn't have a clue what it was um and i took that home and quickly got rid of it so yeah there's live live ordnance so if you see anything you really don't know what it is just don't touch don't it don't touch it don't touch it <laughs> well that's that's one of the things so i think the first time that i ever sort of came across you i was watching um Dan Snow's history hit and one of the things that really amazed me was you know was watching you going along the foreshore and picking up something and going oh yes this is a this is a Roman hairpin and I just remember going like how do you know how how do you kind of develop that ability to identify items and their period on the spot is it just is it from you know as you said all the resources available or is it just years and years of practice it's just I mean it's- to be honest, there's things that you find all the time, um, you know, that once you once you found it, once you found out about it, you sort of it's either the same thing or it's a variant of it. Um, so you kind of get to know what a lot of objects are. And like I say, if I don't know what they are, then I take them home. Coins, you know, they, they, they are what they are. They do what they say on the box. I don't find them that exciting. Mm. Other people do. Um, Roman hairpins, I've got quite a handful of them now. So, you know, I know what they look like. It really is just, you know, like I say, just reading weird books. And the Museum of London is fantastic because a lot of what's in the Museum of London was found in the river. Um, so if you go there, you know, I've spent hours and hours there just pouring over the cases. Um, you know, once you've seen something in, in a book or in a museum, you sort of remember it. And, and then uh, then you can, you've got a starting point. And obviously social media is fantastic because if I don't know what something is, I can pop it on, my, on any of my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram pages. And there's so many people with so much so much knowledge that follow me that you know I usually get something out of that if I'm really stuck. So yeah, it's just it's curiosity, I suppose, that's led to to, to my knowledge. But being a mudlark is you know a lot of it is knowledge. It's knowing what to pick up because you, otherwise you just walk over the top of it and and you're not picking things that are really worth picking up that don't maybe look like much. So you said you said the Thames is tidal, and that's what kind of makes it so so unique. It sort of washes up things every day. Surely the river can't be limitless in its abundance of of artifacts. Do you ever worry that you know the river could run out of objects for mudlarkers to find, or do you think that we're actually quite a long way away from that yet? I mean, it is finite, definitely. Um, I don't know how deep it goes. It's the reason we're finding a lot now is because of erosion. Um, in central London, there are things called barge beds that were created in the 18th and 19th century. What they did was they built up the foreshore, which in its natural state is V-shaped. So they built it up to create these flat platforms next to the river wall. 
And to do that, they just poured loads of building spoil and domestic waste and rubbish and everything really into it, packed it down. And what's happened now, because the barges don't visit central London anymore, nobody's repairing them or doing anything. And so the boards are breaking and the river's starting to eat it away and return it back to this V-shape. Um, and added to that, the modern traffic is a lot faster, it produces much bigger waves. That's eating into the foreshore and it's spreading the contents of these barge beds across the, uh, across the foreshore. I don't know how deep all of this goes. It will eventually run out, um, not in my lifetime, but eventually it will. The way I search is very non-invasive. I don't dig. If you start digging into the force, you start disturbing this very compact, you know, sort mm. of strata and it, and, it, and it erodes much quicker. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm collecting what's scattered across the surface if it's not picked up then it's going to either break up or wash away altogether. So it's very much rescuing what's, what, what's naturally coming out. So yeah, yeah, it will, it will run out. But people, mudlarks have been saying it'll run out, you know, for, for decades now. And I've just read a book actually by Ivan Earl Hume, who was the um, archaeologist around the 1940s, 50s, who was the first archaeologist to, to recognise that these objects that people were finding out of context, really, because there's no strata, there's no context down there, uh, were important in themselves. And he was writing back in the 1950s that it's all running out. You know, people have taken it all, it's all running out. So people have been saying it's running out since at least the 1950s, and it hasn't yet. So, you know, yes, it will. I don't know when. What's an item that on an average day, if you're going down to the foreshore, you can be pretty certain, we're not talking modern, you know, plastic bottles, unfortunately, which do litter the foreshore, but what historical items do you seem to just, you know, it's pretty bog standard, you'll come across them most times yeah i mean if you if you go down to the foreshore i can guarantee you will see bones they're not human bones they're animal bones uh and this is domestic waste so this is the the rubbish that was poured into the into these barge beds and dropped into the river and it's um it's animal bones they can they could date back two thousand years uh you know they could be very very old if you look at them carefully you'll see the cut marks and and the butchery marks and the way they've been smashed open to get the marrow. And, you know, they're fascinating in themselves. You're guaranteed to see those. You'll see oyster shells. Oysters don't live far up, that far up the river. That's all domestic waste as well. You'll see pottery going back 2,000 years. Um, there again, you know, you need to know your pottery to identify, you know, how old it is, but you'll probably find some pottery. Uh, you'll find bricks and, and roof tiles because... You know, builders are a mucky lot. They've, they've, they've been dumping their, their, you know, building spoil into the river, fly tipping, shall we say, um, for centuries. Um, probably, you know, the Blitz created a huge amount of rubble. That was all shoveled into the river just so that people could get on with everyday life. Um, so you'll find a lot of that. And that goes right back to Roman times in certain places. And you will find clay pipe stems almost guaranteed to find at least a clay pipe stem, if not a bowl. And if you look really, really carefully, you might even find some handmade pins but um you probably need if it was your first visit you probably need someone to point out where to look for those so does it does it vary sort of along the Thames where you would find certain types of goods because for example I live I live really near to the river near Barnes so if I was to go down there would I not really find much or is it kind of more concentrated in central London it's definitely more concentrated in central London I mean if you think about it you're going to find more rubbish where there was more human activity uh you know there's more people throwing stuff in and dropping stuff um, I've never had much luck west. I don't really mudlark that much west, but there are people who do. There's quite a lot of prehistoric. If you're going to find a decent um, hand axe or a spear or something, you know, if you're very, very lucky, you might find it up that way. And Victorian, Victorian rubbish all the way down the river. Um, Central London's very, you know, 
there's lots of stuff there. Then when you get out to the pool, that's where they built and they broke up ships. So you find a lot of evidence of shipping and trade. And then you keep going out round to Greenwich. That's there was a Tudor palace there. You find the remains, you know, that they've thrown in from the Tudor palace. Um, and then you keep keep going out. And it changes all the way all the way along. And uh, you know, really, just think about what was going. Think about the history. Think about the industry that was going on. Uh, think about the number of people that were using the river in that spot. And that'll give you an idea of what you're likely to find. So how would you say Mudlarkin's changed your relationship with the city of London? Do you, obviously, you've learned kind of so much about the geography of it, but do you view it differently now that you know it so intimately? I feel more connected with the people who created it, I suppose, because London's not about all those statues of great and good people. It's about the ordinary people like you and me, you know, our ancestors who worked hard and died young, and, you know, maybe all they've left behind is a broken pot that they smashed one day when they were a bit tipsy coming back from the tavern. You know, it's those connections, I think, that has made London a lot more human for me and, uh, you know, has given me that sense of all the people who have come before. My ancestors included, they, you know, they moved down from the Shetland Islands to London, like so many people did. Um, and they created London. That, you know, it's made London very ordinary, I suppose, for me like an ordinary place you know you, you stop seeing all the, all, the, all the grand stuff and you see the more grassroots the real London. Was mudlarking something you were able to continue throughout the current or previous lockdowns obviously when things were really tightly locked down in March I'm assuming you couldn't get down there and how, how did it feel to be away from you know that form of solace for you for so long? Yeah, I mean, the Port of London Authority, who um, own, they're, the, they're the landowner there, they uh, asked people to stay away from the foreshore during the first lockdown, which is which was absolutely right. Um, and the boats stopped going. And I really, really missed, really missed going there. But the odd thing was, because there was no river traffic, the silt started building up. And it would have been really hard to mudlark because it was thick with, it made me realise how much the river traffic cleans and and shifts the mud it just became thick with um, mud it would have been very difficult to mudlark um, and the river really was turning back into a, a, a much more natural place it was quieter than it had ever been for you know for 2,000 years there was nothing on it and um, it's quite an incredible place I got back to it as quickly as I could you know safely and I missed it yeah I missed it enormously but I mean I live by the sea I'm very very lucky I live by the sea so I can just five minutes I'm, I'm on the beach so I transferred my my you know my need for the river to the sea which is a very different different beast altogether but it, it served a purpose during lockdown. <laughs> is mudlarking as a hobby as you know as a wider hobby is it is it generally sort of centralized and focused on the Thames or do people do it elsewhere because I've heard of you know people from America coming over here to mudlark is is the Thames a particularly unique setting? Thames I would argue that the Thames is the best place on earth to mudlark simply because it's got 2,000 years of intense human habitation and it's got these incredible tides you can mudlark anywhere though I mean people do mudlark uh, I think on the um, in New York there's a place in New York where they go um, rivers all around the UK people are mudlarking river wading magnet fishing, you know, pulling stuff out of rivers because rivers have always been used as dumps. So, uh, you know, even the smallest river, stream, you're, you've got a chance of finding a bottle or something that somebody's sort of tossed in. They're great places to search. So, yeah, people are doing it all over the place. There's Plymouth, um, they do them out. Uh, they, they go out mudlarking in Plymouth, looking for the cannonballs and all the sort of Navy stuff. That, that There's quite a lot of that out there. 
Uh, there are people in Medlock on Humber, down in Cornwall, you know, all over the place. People are, are looking for things. Sea glassing is a big thing as well, you know, sort of on beaches. I think, you know, I think people are natural hunter-gatherers, really. Some people are hunters, some people are gatherers. And, and if you're a gatherer, then, you know, you're just drawn to looking down. You just walk around with your head down looking wherever you go, you know. Um, I, I took the kids off to our local Roman fort, which really is just a pile of rocks um, down the road. And my daughter picked up a nice piece of pottery. It turned out to be a 2,000-year-old piece of Samian, decorated Samian, which is just lying on the ground. So, you know, if you've got your eyes open, you, you can find the most incredible things. It's just a case of, of looking. Do your children love to ask you about your finds? Have they sort of inherited this inquisitive, explorative nature? One has and one hasn't. I think the finds are just sort of part of the house, really, that they've just grown up with. And it's just stuff that's around that they don't really ask about. But, uh, you know, I do force the information on them sometimes to <laughs> make sure they're involved. I think, I think I've got one mini mudlark and the other one's not remotely interested. So let's, you know, talk specifically about your book now. I've, I mean, in studying history, I've never read anything like this. I think for me, what was so interesting is the fact that it's, it's so great to read someone talking about something they're clearly so passionate about and so knowledgeable about. And you just, you just don't, you don't get that anymore. I, I don't think in, in a lot of history. So, so what inspired you to write the book, to sit down and write the book? And, and what was your favorite part of, of writing it? Do you know what? It's, it, it's a bit of a story because I started my London Mudlark Facebook page in 2012 and I did it anonymously until 2016 I didn't really I wasn't doing it to sort of become a you know a, a name or anything and uh, it was just somewhere I was doing it I had twins and I was feeling a bit lonely and I just wanted to in, interact with people who were interested in the same things as me and I was going mudlarking you know once a week and coming back and researching my fans I thought I'll put it online and share it with people and it grew and grew which was brilliant um, and then an agent contacted me through that and asked me if I wanted to write a book, which I'd never wanted to do because I work in publishing and I know far too much about what goes into writing books. And I, I was never a frustrated author. I was quite happy editing. And um, I thought about it, nearly didn't go and see her. And eventually I did. And she's very persuasive and lovely. And she persuaded me to write the book. It just sort of came really, I suppose. It's, it is something I feel incredibly passionate about. I love sharing it. I just love sharing it with other people and seeing them get enthused and excited about history and just, you know, sort of casting off the cobwebs of history. It's not boring. It's exciting history. It's why we're here. You know, it explains so much uh, and it can be very therapeutic, I think, just like looking back and realising that people have been there before, they've done it before, you know, they've been through pandemics before. We've got through this. We will get through this. And, you know, it, it, I just love sharing it. So writing the book was was a labour of love. It took me three years and a lot of tantrums. I wrote it, rewrote it three times. And finally, I, you know, I had a fantastic editor, finally got it right. And um I'm, yeah, I'm pleased with it. I think it, it turned out all right. It definitely did. And that kind of sense of just wanting to share the history really comes across. And especially when history has always been a really male-dominated field, I think, and particularly in academia as well. What would your advice be to someone such as myself who was really gripped or another inquisitive young woman who wants to get into mudlarking and explore the interest further? Well, yeah, it's interesting you say that because, uh, you know, 15 years ago, you didn't see many women on the foreshore. It, it is predominantly a male, you know, male thing, a bit like metal detecting, it's mainly men that do it. But more recently, there's so many more women going down there, um, which is lovely. It's so nice. Um, my advice would be 
get a permit. Everyone searching the foreshore needs a permit from the Port of London Authority. You can apply for it online. So you need that. You need to be aware of where you can search, where you can't search. There are scheduled monuments. There are places where you can't disturb the foreshore. Um, the maps are all on the Port of London Authority um, website as well. So make yourself familiar with those and go down and just give it a go. Give it a go. Um, go somewhere, I would say, start uh, fairly central because that's the popular area. If you're worried about being on your own, it's really quite safe. Um, you know, use your common sense, check the tides, make sure, you know, when your tide's coming back in, don't get cut off, you know, always be aware of your access points, take a mobile phone, go with a friend and uh, just go down and give it a go. Just go and enjoy it. So finally, so you've, you've found so many things over the years, rare items to, to clay pipe stems every day. Are there any specific items that you're still really holding out for and you're thinking, oh, one day, one day I will find this item? Or is there something you'd like to find more of? Well, up until uh, a few months ago, it was a pilgrim badge. And I have been searching my entire mudlarking career for a pilgrim badge. And these were, I'll just quickly explain what they are, but they were uh, little pewter badges that were made in medieval times for pilgrims when they were visiting shrines. And they were basically tourist tax. So, you know, it's, it's the pin on your hat or your bag or your coat to say, I'm a good pilgrim. Look where I've been. You know, it's a bit like buying a snow globe. Anyway, they get back to London. They found so we well, mudlarks and people have found so many in the Thames that they think that when they got back to London from their pilgrimages, which could take years if they were going to Jerusalem, usually it was just the Canterbury, they throw them into the river as a thanks for a safe return. And I've been searching for one for ages and ages, always convinced I'd find a Thomas Beckett one, a Canterbury one, they're the common ones. Um, and then I was down on the foreshore this summer and I found one and it's a St. Osmond of Salisbury and it's quite rare. And uh, so I finally found my pilgrim badge. So now I don't have an answer to that question <laughs> because I've done it. Um, obviously, I'd love to find a, a Beckett badge. You know, that would be amazing. What I love is just the really personal stuff. Anything with someone's name on, anything with an inscription, anything that leads you can lead you to a specific person. I am happy with as much of that as I can get my hands on. You know, posy ring. I've got a posy ring now, so, you know, take that one off. You know, a, a little... Roman uh, statue from a household shrine would be lovely. Um, and they do come up because I've seen one somebody found uh, just a, a few months ago. So um, they do they do appear occasionally. So yeah, something like that would be great. Well, Lara Maycomb, I really hope you get to find your Thomas Beckett pilgrim badge. I will be watching your Instagram closely to hopefully find it. You can follow Lara. It's London Mudlark, isn't it? It's London Mudlark on Facebook and Twitter and it's London.mudlark on Instagram. Lara, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a fascinating discussion and just brilliant. I hope to get more women into mudlarking. <laughs> well, thank you very much for, for talking to me, Olivia. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.